All right, welcome to this remote version of physiology for the fall semester 2020. Uh, my plan is to keep the course as close as possible to what I would normally do in the classroom, but obviously there'll be a few things that are different, particularly for the lab portion of the course, um, but the TAs will uh, hopefully be able to outline more specifically what to expect from the lab. And I certainly encourage you to um, visit their Zoom office hours. So to start, this is going to be lecture one, part one. As an introduction to the course, uh, this is a picture of the uh, Human Physiology textbook by Laura Lee Sherwood that I'm gonna go off for this semester. And this is the ninth edition of the textbook, From Cells to Systems. Uh, she writes really well. I think the illustrations for the most part are, are quite good. So it's a very useful text. And what I would urge you to do is to use the textbook as a backup resource to help you understand the material that we cover this semester. All right, so if you go through and take lecture notes, listen to the lectures, and you're still not, qu not quite clear on a subject, uh, you can always go to the textbook, find the section that you're confused about, and read Sherwood's description to help you out. Right. Now, generally speaking, uh, I always get questions about whether or not uh, someone can use an earlier version of this textbook. For example, the eighth or the seventh edition. And I generally discourage using earlier editions of the book simply because as I go through and I lecture on material, I like to point out exactly where I am in the book that talks about the subject matter. And I will particularly refer to specific figures in the book, and I'll actually copy figures into the lecture um, to show you where we are. And from one edition to the next, the page numbers, the figure numbers get changed around and that can lead to confusion. So for that reason alone, I really don't recommend earlier editions of this textbook. So this is the ninth edition. So you guys should have received an email from me. I indicated that uh, the syllabus is posted online and this is uh, a, a copy of it here. And I'll just go through this quickly to point out a few things about how the course is organized. The first is that, as I indicated in the email, the lectures, these are going to be asynchronous, pre-recorded lectures, 75 minutes long, or as close to that as I can get. Occasionally I might go over by a few minutes, but I'll try and be uh, stringent in sticking to that time period. And, uh, I was debating on whether to do asynchronous or to do live Zoom lectures. And in the end, I thought that um, 
having pre-recorded asynchronous lectures and then making them available to you would be a more flexible option for uh, people so that they can view the lectures whenever they want and you're not locked into a particular um, 8 a.m. to 9.15 a.m. time period every Tuesday and Thursday. So once the lectures are recorded, I will upload each to the cloud storage on the university website, which is called Box. And once uploaded there, then I will send out an email invitation for each lecture saying that it's now available for viewing. Right, so you should expect every Tuesday and Thursday to receive an email uh, to access the most recent lecture. And uh, as I indicated in, in my email, each lecture will be divided into two parts, part one, part two. And that's simply to keep the file size relatively manageable for each lecture. So instead of one 75-minute block, I'll have like a 40-minute block and then a 35-minute block. Now, the labs then are a little bit newer, and you should have hopefully already received an email invitation uh, from the Lab Tutor website on the AD Instruments website. Uh, inviting you to join uh, the BISC 330 Physiology Lab, where you create a username and a password, and then you'll have access to see the lab modules which are available. So once on the LT website, uh, down in Part C here, Item 2, I have a description here on generally what each lab entails. And you can go through and read about this. Uh, the main thing I would just say is that uh, each lab consists of, is what's called a module, and that has different lessons within it. And those lessons usually consist of some background information to help you understand the physiology behind what the lab is about. And as you go through that background information, you'll see that uh, there are interactive questions and activities uh, to be done. And then there's, after the background lessons on some of the physiology, then there's a pre-lab, which essentially describes the instrumentation used to collect the data and how that instrumentation is hooked up to uh, either the animal or the human to collect the data. And then there's the lab itself where you go through and you collect virtual data that's already been pre-collected and you analyze the data and then answer questions about it. All right, so that's the essence of the labs. And the, the teaching assistants this semester are China Ray Dearman and Belinda Bagwandine, and their email addresses are posted here on the syllabus. So China Ray is in charge of remote sections one through three, and Belinda is 
taking sections four through six. So depending upon what section you're in, you can email um, your TA if you have questions about the labs. And the TAs have Zoom office hours. They will hold Zoom office hours uh, according to the schedules listed here on the syllabus. So I highly encourage you to uh, attend those office hours to ask questions about the lab. Now, my office hours also are through Zoom and uh, they are tentatively scheduled for Mondays from 4.15 to 5.45 p.m. and Fridays from noon to 1.30 p.m. And if, you're not happen, if you don't happen to be in the central time zone, uh, just make a note that these are, times are all central daylight time hours. Uh, in terms of course description, really this is a one semester course in physiology and as right, the image shows up here of Sherwood's textbook, the focus is specifically on human physiology. And even though the course is focused on human physiology, right, humans are part of the animal kingdom, all, most of the principles of physiology that we talk about this semester are widely applicable to all mammals, and not only that, most all vertebrate systems. So the principles that we talk about, even though they're human-focused, are really uh, broadly found in the vertebrate kingdom, and even in, uh, to a certain extent, in invertebrates. But this is a, just in terms of what we're going to cover, if you go down to the bottom of the syllabus, to part N, shows uh, all the lecture topics that are gonna be introduced. And essentially, the coverage of the material, I follow fairly closely how the organization of the book and how the book covers the material. So we're going to start with chapter one on an introduction to physiology and some critical key concepts of physiology. And then skip chapter two, we'll go to chapter three. Chapter three is effectively focused on the electrical properties of excitable cells which is fundamental to understanding uh, much of what we're going to talk about later on the semester. Chapter four then focuses specifically on uh, neuronal cells and their functional properties. So after chapter four then, we get into the broader nervous system function, which is chapters five, six, and seven. And those chapters will be covered relatively sparingly. Uh, and then after we get through with the nervous system in chapter seven, that will take us into skeletal muscle physiology in chapter eight. And following skeletal muscle physiology, chapter nine then transitions to uh, cardiac physiology in the heart, understanding heart function. And after chapter nine, then we get into the broader uh, chapter 10 on cardiovascular system function. 
and particularly the properties of uh, understanding blood flow, blood pressure, and um, resistance within the cardiovascular system. So this is a shortened semester. We are have three fewer lectures to cover than in a normal semester. So there's only 23 lectures. So that means it's unlikely we're going to have enough time to cover the respiratory system. Uh, and if you look at the distribution of exams here, uh, the first midterm will be on September 23rd, and that midterm will be administered through Blackboard. So these will be online Blackboard administered exams. Uh, the second midterm is on October 20th, and the final cumulative exam is scheduled for November the 19th, which will also be on Blackboard. Now, the lab material, what is, the topics covered in the lab, uh, I've tried to closely reproduce in terms of what we're also going to be talking about in lecture. So generally, the, the topics parallel one another. So if you notice, the first, um, really, four labs cover uh, the properties of electrical excitable cells, particularly neurons, in um, labs one and two. And then labs three and four are more focused on um, larger nervous system function. And then we get into uh, skeletal muscle function, cardiac function, and the cardiovascular system. All right. So those labs should help you reinforce the concepts that we cover in the lecture. Uh, what else? So in terms of grading, if you come up here, the, each midterm is worth 100 points. The final exam is worth 200 points. And each online lab is worth 20 points. And there are six of those. The online labs, as I said, you should really view them as, as open book quizzes, opportunities to uh, answer questions about some of the key concepts that we're going to cover and that are introduced in uh, the virtual labs. So it also gives you a feel for how physiological data is collected and analyzed. That gives you the opportunity for some really, I think, easy points in, in the lab if you go through and spend the time to read uh, about the introductory material in the labs and answer those questions. Uh, I do, so there's no extra credit. I want to highlight this. Given. So the points on offer here are uh, the only points available. So there's essentially 560 points total in the course. And your letter grade is based upon the percentage of points that you accumulate ba based upon the total possible points. 
And I do use the plus minus grading system. Um, and you can go through and read the description of about uh, of exactly how I use the plus minus grading system. Uh, one other note about test taking is that the exams, as I said, will be administered through Blackboard. And I will use the proctored software extension that's called Proctorio. And in the syllabus, I have links directing you to how you can download the Proctorio extension. This is an extension that must be used with the web browser Google Chrome. And make sure you download and install that into Google Chrome as an extension and test the functionality of it. Uh, that extension allows essentially uh, control of how you use your computer while taking the exam. And that's to minimize um, potential academic dishonesty which might occur uh, during the exam. Now, if you have further questions about it, uh, again, I encourage you to hop onto my Zoom office hours and we can discuss further. So the rest of this then, um, I'll let you read on your own time and uh, you can ask questions during my office hours if you like. All right, so that's it in terms of uh, the introduction to the course. So let's get into the content. And the good, best place to start is a definition. Talk about what is physiology. And this is right on page two in chapter one. So physiology really simply can be defined as the study of all functions within an organism. Simply put, how an organism functions, understanding how an organism functions. Now, to go one step further, we can ask the question or define, you know, what is a function? And really, you know, a function is a very, can be broadly defined as any activity or process that is inherent to an organism that contributes to its viability or perform performance. Inherent to an organism. that contributes to its viability and or performance. 
very broad definition. I'll give you some examples of functions. Some are more obvious than others. So ventilation or breathing is one. Right, moving air, exchanging air between the atmosphere and the alveoli within the lung. Another example would be the formation of urine. Or muscle contraction. Right, things that uh, are somewhat obvious. But then there are others which maybe are not so obvious. And these could be cell-cell communication, uh, solute transport, And that could be solute transport in the blood. It could be solute transport across a cell membrane. Or perhaps the uh, release of a hormone from a particular endocrine cell. All right, so these are all examples of functions that occur. And I do want to emphasize that you know, the, the course really is focused on understanding function, the functions that occur within the human body. And some course, some physiology courses incorporate anatomy as part of the course, but uh, this is notably not an anatomy course. So I minimally have you learn names uh, of bodily structures, uh, but we don't go into heavy detail on the names of specific muscle groups or specific nerves. Uh, and the like. So uh, really, I, I, the anatomy that I do bring in is really just that which is necessary to understand the functions that we're trying to understand. Okay, so when we think about function, one of the things that I'll emphasize here is that Functions, almost all functions are very dynamic in their nature. Very dynamic as opposed to them being static. And what I mean by that is that when we consider functions, we not only want to consider 
how that function occurs, but critically, the signals which can cause changes in the rate of those functions. Because a key critical, I think, concept in physiology is the understanding that the rate at which bodily functions occur can rapidly change over time. And that's what we, I mean by the functions have a dynamic nature to them. So the rate of a function can change over time. The nature of the function itself may be the same, but the rate at which that function occurs can change. And understanding what triggers that change in rate of function is an important part of understanding physiology. Right? And a good example is just with uh, ventilation rate, right? The rate at which you breathe. Well, that breathing rate can change quite dramatically depending upon whether you're out exercising or whether or not you're sitting down. And the activity itself is the same. You're breathing in and out. But the rate that that occurs is quite different. And so understanding what triggers those rate changes is part of understanding physiology. So you have to think of physiology and functions as being very dynamic. Now, when you think about explaining function, because that's the goal here, is to be able to explain how functions occur. It's important to realize that there are actually two different ways of thinking about function. So I want to talk for a second simply about how do we explain function? may seem like a trivial question, but in fact, uh, this is, it's quite important to distinguish different ways of thinking about function. And again, I'll go back to the example of um, ventilation rate and level of exercise, right? You go out and exercise, ventilation rate increases. So we could ask the question, well, why does ventilation rate increase when you exercise, right? That's, that's one thought process on explaining a function is, is asking why does that function, the rate of that function change? Now, one way of answering that question is through what's called a teleological explanation. A function. Now, if you explain a function teleologically, what this means is that you are explaining a function as meeting a bodily need.
That's a teleological explanation. So you go out and exercise, breathing rate, ventilation rate goes up. Why does ventilation rate go up when you exercise? Well, a teleological explanation is that when you exercise, muscles use more oxygen, therefore you have to take in more oxygen, therefore breathing rate has to go up. So ventilation rate increases because your body needs more oxygen. That's a teleological explanation. But explaining something teleologically doesn't really give you very much insight into the, the mechanics of how that function occurs, what specific components are involved. So the alternative way of explaining a function is what's called a mechanistic explanation. A mechanistic explanation then is one where the function is explained as a series of cause and effect events. That are crucial for that function to occur. Now, when you explain something mechanistically, you're diving into the specifics of how that function occurs as opposed to why that function occurs. So you can look at a teleological explanation as answering why a function occurs. Why? Why does ventilation rate go up? Why does ventilation rate go up? Well, because of the increased need for oxygen during exercise. The mechanistic explanation is answering really the how a function occurs. And the field of physiology and what physiologists strive to do is answer function mechanistically. So our goal in this course is to attain a mechanistic understanding of function, not just a teleological explanation. Now you can look at teleological explanations and mechanistic explanations as two sides of the same coin, but uh, you obtain a much better understanding of how organisms function if you can explain something mechanistically as opposed to just explaining it teleologically. Teleological is more of a superficial explanation. So, We're going to explain a function mechanistically.
What you need to understand and know are the critical components that are involved and necessary for that function. You need to understand the properties of each component. What's the nature of each of these components? Because those properties are critical in understanding the third bit here, which is essentially how, when, and where the components interact with each other. Right, whenever a, some bodily function occurs, it's almost always the case that there are going to be multiple components involved and those components talk to each other. They interact in specific ways that are critical for the function to occur. Now, when I go to write my exam questions, uh, you know, I'm writing questions thinking, do you know the mechanistic explanation for this function? And when I write my questions, whether they're multiple choice questions or whether they're uh, short answer questions, I'm writing them in a way that's really going to focus on, do you know these things? A, B, and C. So as you study and you think about how do I learn this material, I think a good way to frame your studying is to focus on understanding the components involved, the properties of those components, how, when, and where the components interact to either uh, produce a function or to change the rate of that function. All right, so right from the beginning, this is how you want to study. You want to learn these things. And I think the critical bit here is that um, memorization can get you to recognize the components involved and perhaps even the properties of, of each of those components. But you have to go a step further to understand the how, when, the where, the components interact. So that requires a little bit more effort because you have to keep straight the order in which things occur. All right, so that's a mechanistic explanation which we are going to strive to attain in all the topics that we cover. And to explain something mechanistically then requires that we understand the levels of organization present within the body.
And this is actually section 1.2 in the book. Starting on page 2. And going through page 7. So to, to explain something mechanistically requires that you have a clear understanding of the different levels of organization in the body. And if you do have a clear understanding of that, it makes uh, developing your explanation a bit more clear and more easy to organize. So let's start, we're going to start at the lowest level of organization and work our way up. So the first level of organization is what the book calls the chemical level. And this is essentially can also be referred to as the molecular level of organization. Right, these are all the molecules uh, necessary for life to occur. And the four essential groups of molecules that are outlined in the book, right, these are all the carbon-based molecules, proteins, the lipids, nucleic acids, and the carbohydrates. Right, four essential molecular groups. Uh, I'm actually want to add another one that's not listed in the book. And, but is still actually quite critical for many functions, bodily functions that occur. And I'm going to just broadly call this the small solutes. One group of critical small solutes are the gases, uh, oxygen and carbon dioxide. And another crucial group of small solutes that we actually talk a lot about are the ions, sodium, potassium, chloride, protons, calcium, bicarbonate, are all crucial physiologically important ions for multiple different functions that occur. Now, throughout the course, you know, as I said, uh, when we talk about specific, uh, the chemical level of organization, that's largely going to boil down to highlighting uh, critical roles of ions in certain functions or gases, or uh, specific proteins that are crucial for a function to occur. So those are going to be the main chemical groups that we'll be focused on this semester. Second level of organization then is the cell level. And okay, so I'm this is going to end, I'll end part one of lecture one here and then continue it in part two.
All right, we'll continue on with lecture one, part two, talking about levels of organization in the body. So we talked about the chemical level of organization, and now we're at the cell level of organization. If you recall oops, the definition of a cell, cell is the smallest organizational unit capable of executing all processes associated with life. And really, you know, a cell arises because of specific interactions that occur at the molecular level. A specific uh, organization and combination of molecules then generates a cell. So the interaction of molecular components in specific ways yields what we call new functions that individual molecules cannot do or perform. And those new functions are the fundamental basis for life Now, if you think about a typical adult human has roughly, it's estimated anyway, on the order of 100 trillion cells. And the vast majority of those cells are interacting with each other in different ways and those interactions then are crucial in dictating how the animal as a whole functions. Now, when cells begin to interact with one another, this leads to the third level of organization, and that is, it's called the tissue level. So a tissue can be defined as a group of cells, group of uh, interacting cells, having similar structure and function. that yields new functions, one or more new functions, not possible by, an not possible by individual cells. So it's really a closely associated group of interacting cells having similar structure and function. And those interactions 
uh, of which yield new functions. So that's the tissue level. Now, in the human body, there are what are called four primary tissue types that are recognized. in the body. And these four primary tissue types are nervous tissue, muscular tissue, epithelial tissue, and connective tissue. So nervous tissue is, is tissue that's specialized to generate and transmit electrical signals. Muscle tissue is specialized to generate force through the process of contraction. Epithelial tissue is specialized to form boundaries within the body. And lines surfaces. So any internal or external surface has an epithelial tissue layer to it. And by far, the epithelial tissue is the most di diverse group out of these four tissue types. See lots of varying different types of epithelial tissue. And then connective tissue is specialized to uh, form an insoluble extracellular matrix. And that insoluble extracellular matrix is then essentially a scaffold to which other cells can attach and is the basis for the morphological development of different tissues and organs, or organs, I should say. So those are the four primary tissue types. Now, moving up in levels of organization from the tissue level, then we go up to the organ level of organization. And an organ can be defined as two or more primary tissues interacting in specific ways that yield new functions.
So an example is, well, uh, what's given in the book actually, and I'll, I'll import this figure in a minute, but figure one, two in the book, uh, actually figure one, three on page five, shows the stomach and it shows how the stomach has a, a, all four primary tissue types. There's epithelial, there's connective, there's muscle, and there's nervous tissue in the stomach. And those tissues, each tissue has its own specific pattern. Uh, and together, those tissues interact in specific ways to form the stomach, which has new functions associated with it that any single tissue cannot accomplish. So from the organ level of organization, then we move up to what in, in the book, Sherwood calls the body system level. Some textbooks call this an organ system. So the body system level of organization. And really a body system can be defined as two or more organs interacting in specific ways that yield new functions. And these, right, these new functions are functions that are not possible at the lower levels of organization. Now, in the body, in the human body, there are actually 11 different body systems that are distinguished. And these body systems are shown in figure 1-5 in the book on pages 8 and 9. As I said, I should have actually wrote this up here. The organ and an example in the stomach is going to be figure 1-3 on page 5. Now, I'm not going to write out and list all 11 body systems. Uh, you can go look in the book for that. And you don't need to memorize all of those either. But I will highlight some of the body systems that we will hit upon this semester. So those that we will cover are the nervous system, As I said, essentially chapters five, six, and seven are on understanding the nervous system. Touch just a little bit on the endocrine system. And at the end of chapter four, get into the muscular system Right, the muscular system is the collection of all body muscles, uh, specifically referring to skeletal muscle, the collection of all body skeletal muscle. 
cardiovascular system. And I will also list the respiratory system. All right, so examples of different body systems. And finally, at the highest level of complexity, we have the organismal level. And you could sort of define an organism as the interaction of multiple body systems in ways that yield a free-living organism. Free-living, autonomous uh, organism or entity. All right, so let me shrink this down a little bit. And the thing that I'll emphasize here, going from the chemical level on up to the organismal level, is that when moving from one level to the next, essentially this involves the interaction between simpler components to yield a more complex component that has what are called emergent properties. So as I said, right, when I defined or, or described the cell level of organization, I said it's effectively a cell can be considered um, what evolves or or what emerges from interactions of specific molecular components in specific ways. So in other words, as these chemical components interact, if they interact in the right ways, they yield what you can call emergent properties. And the emergent properties are the new functions. And when we go from the molecular level to the cell level, the new functions are all those fundamental functions or processes that are associated with life. And the same can be said as we go from the cell to the tissue level. And these emergent properties are because of the interactions that occur of, of the molecular components.
So as we go from the cell to the tissue level, uh, you get additional new functions occurring that are not possible at the cell level. So again, these are emergent properties occur because of the interactions. among the cells to yield new functions. And going from the tissue to the organ level, you get new emergent properties that arise. The interactions among the tissues that are involved in forming that organ. And the same is true for the body systems. Interaction among, among organs to yield new functions. So new emergent properties develop. And thinking back to when I talked about a mechanistic explanation of function said, a crucial component of that is understanding what the components are, what the properties of those components are, and how, when, and where they interact. And when individual components interact together, I mean, it's not, it's not immediately obvious how those interactions may yield these emergent new functions. And that's the whole, really, fascination and interest in physiology and the research into physiology is to specifically tease apart the components and how they specifically interact to yield these new emergent properties. Uh, one interesting one to think about, just you know, to give you an example, is you know, one body system emergent property uh, in the nervous system is thought and emotion that's centered in the brain. And those emergent properties we still don't understand clearly what these specific interactions are from the cell level up to the organ level that results in that particular emergent property of, of human function, thought or emotion. So there's still ongoing research to, to understanding how some of these emergent properties appear from the interactions that occur at lower levels of organization. But that's what we strive to do, is to explain these emergent properties and functions from the interactions that occur at lower levels of organization. Now, let me bring in a figure from the book.
put this down here. So this is figure one, two. page four. So which illustrates these different levels. Chemical level of organization showing uh, here an individual phospholipid molecule that makes up a lipid bilayer and the collection of all those uh, specific chemical components then organizing in a specific way to yield the cell level of organization. And then in this case, the example given is an epithelial cell, uh, an individual cell of the stomach lining to the tissue layer where thousands of epithelial cells closely associating and interacting with one another to yield the inner lining of the stomach to then the organ level where the, right, the epithelial layer interacts with a connective tissue layer and a muscle layer. And there's a nervous tissue layer in there that, that's not shown, but that's those specific unique organizations and how they interact in yielding the function of the stomach, the new emergent functions of the stomach and then how the stomach then interacts with other organs in specific ways that allows for the entire functional process of digestion to occur. And finally, the interaction of multiple body systems to yield the free living or organism. All right, so that's section 1.2 in the book. And keeping straight these levels of organization are, are crucial to developing a mechanistic understanding in terms of particularly when you think about the components that are involved and how those components interact with each other. All right, so our next topic then is to talk about the fluid compartments within the body. And this is covered in section one three in the book, which starts on page seven and goes through really the end of the chapter through page 18. Now, this section is not just on fluid compartments, but it's on uh, a more central concept. But uh, the fluid compartments in the body are an important part of uh, section 1-3. And again, getting back to mechanistic explanations, it's important to distinguish between these fluid compartments because uh, those fluid compartments are quite different in terms of their overall role in uh, 
different functions that occur in the body. So broadly, these fluid compartments are divided into either an intracellular compartment, the intracellular fluid. So obviously this is the fluid within a cell. what we normally simply call the cytoplasm. Right, fluid within the inside of the bound plasma membrane of a cell. Now, if a fluid's not intracellular, then it is going to be extracellular. So we have extracellular fluid. Or ECF. I spend a fair amount of time talking about the extracellular fluid, so I'm going to abbreviate this as ECF. If I talk about intracellular fluid or cytoplasmic fluid, I'll either refer to this as uh, ICF or simply the cytoplasm. Now, the extracellular fluid is um, only constitutes about one-third of all the fluid in your body. Uh, Two-thirds of your fluid is intracellular, and only about one-third of it is extracellular. But when you look at the extracellular fluid, then there are actually even more specific subcompartments that can be distinguished. And these are, particularly the first two, these are important. So extracellular fluid can be divided into the plasma. This is the fluid component of blood. All right, so another way of saying this is that this is fluid found within blood vessels. So it's specifically within that blood vessel compartment. A second ECF fluid is the interstitial fluid. Now, this is the fluid that surrounds and bathes the cells within each organ. So you can look at each organ as having its own morphological boundary. It's bounded by epithelial tissue. And the fluid within that organ surrounding the cells that make up the organ is the interstitial fluid. So these are the two fluids that are highlighted in the book on pages eight and nine. And figure one six in the book is, shows these two fluids. Now there are actually two other fluids that are not listed in uh, the Sherwood textbook, but I want to highlight those uh, anyway. 
A third fluid is lymph. So lymph is the fluid that's found within the lymphatic vessels. as opposed to fluid within the blood vessels, which is the plasma. And a fourth group or fluid is what's called the transcellular fluid. So transcellular fluid is the fluid that's generated by uh, the specialized transport activity of epithelial tissue. And I'll give you a few examples of transcellular fluid. Sweat is transcellular fluid. Saliva. Uh, urine. Tears. and cerebrospinal fluid. I'll give you one more, uh, the digestive juices in, that are crucial for digestion, uh, digesting foods. These are all examples of transcellular fluid. The transcellular fluids can have uh, a much different fluid composition compared to the other three fluids. Plasma, interstitial, and lymph fluids have very similar compositions, but because of the specific specialized transport activity that generates transcellular fluid, the composition can be quite a bit different for, for these fluids. Now, the reason that I talk about these fluids first is because these fluids are crucial for understanding the next concept that we're going to talk about. And that, this is the, the main feature of section 1.3 in the book, which is the regulation of the internal environment.
All right, so I'm going to introduce this. I'm going to throw out a, a couple of names of some founding fathers of physiology, at least modern-day physiology. So the first is a physiologist by the name of Claude Bernard. He's a very famous French physiologist. He did... He's a very astute experimentalist and did his work largely in the 1860s or thereabouts. And after many years of experimentation on trying to understand how animals function and how their organs function, he came to this most famous conclusion, sort of the culmination of all his work, that the constancy of the internal environment is the necessary condition for a free and independent life. So it doesn't seem like much of a wow conclusion, but at the time, the insight that he had based upon all the experiments and conclusions he had reached were quite profound given the knowledge of function at the time, but it wasn't recognized, his, his, th this profound insight just wasn't appreciated at the time. And it wasn't until another physiologist by the name of Walter Cannon And Walter Cannon, he's an American physiologist. He did much of his work in the 1930s. So he was a, a really strong experimentalist. And he did... Oop, time's up. So let me just finish by saying he did multiple experiments where he recognized just how important... Claude Bernard's conclusion was and just how central it was to understanding how animals function, how their organs function and body systems function. And he was so compelled by the insight that Claude Bernard had and the importance of his conclusion that he came up with the term homeostasis so Cannon coined this term, and it is effectively defined as the tendency of the internal environment to remain constant over an organism's life.
or lifetime. And he really championed this idea. And from that, uh, to this day, this is a central theme of thinking about physiology and the function of cells, tissues, organs, and body systems. All right, so I'll, I'll leave, I'll end this lecture here, lecture one, and we'll pick this up next time, finish off chapter one, and, uh, and then move on to chapter three. So I'll see you guys next time. And make sure, I strongly encourage you to come hop onto my Zoom office hours if you have any questions about this lecture material. Particularly since, right, I can't, there's no back and forth give and take in this type of environment. Uh, hop on my office hours. I look forward to, to seeing you guys there.